0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Hindu Studies, which is part of the New Books Network, which has been created under the auspices of Amherst College Press. I am your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University, a research and distance learning university dedicated to breaking down barriers to learning by offering open and flexible educational options across the disciplines. For a range of courses and programs offered at Athabasca Universities, please check out www.athabascau.ca. Today, I am so so happy and so thrilled to have Dr. Philip Lutendorf on the podcast. He's been undertaking a multi-volume and still ongoing translation of the Hindi devotional text, The Ramcharitmanas, written by the North Indian poet Tulsidas. The title of the translation is called The Epic of Rama and is part of the larger Murti Classical Library of India series published by Harvard University Press and distributed in India through Penguin Books. Currently, four po- volumes have been uh, published out of the projected seven set tra- uh, translation. So Philip, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Shandeep. Incidentally, incidentally, it's the epic of Ram, R A M, not Rama. <laughs> we're using the we're u- using the Hindi uh, the Hindi pronunciation. Okay.
0: Thank you. I stand corrected, and I will um, remember that at the end of the podcast as well. So um, for. Those of our audience who do not um, know about your work, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you teach, what you teach, your areas of research uh, interest.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, I just stopped teaching. That is to say, I retired uh, after 33 years of teaching. As of last summer, uh, I retired from the University of Iowa. But I have been teaching Hindi and courses in, in Indian literature uh, religion, history, cinema uh, for the last 33 years since 1985 in the Department of Asian Languages and Literature at Iowa. Um, so um, my work has really focused on performance traditions, popular um, and folk, you could say, um, ranging from the performances of the classical epics, uh, the, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, uh, through to modern mass media, television, and, and cinema. Um, but my focus, of course, has been on Tulsidas and his great epic. Um, I did my dissertation research on that subject, um, looking at some of the ways in which the epic was brought to life for mass audiences in North India. And that became a book uh, published in 1991 called The Life of a Text, per, subtitled Performing the Ramcharitmanas of Tulsidas. Um, and that research in turn led me to interest in Hanuman and uh, Hanuman's popularity as a, as a deity in, in popular Hinduism. And the fact that Hanuman was so little discussed in scholarship on Hinduism really interested me. And that led me to about 15 years of research, uh, including many trips to India and collection of a great deal of material, particularly in Hindi. Um, And that became the book called Hanuman's Tale, spelled spelled T-A-L-E, um, the, and subtitled "The Messages of a Divine Monkey," which was published by Oxford University Press in two thousand seven. Um, all through this time, I had also been writing on uh, cinema and and other subjects. Most recently, I've gotten very interested in in tea. Um, yes. Tea, tea, the beverage, well, actual, actually chai, uh, the the Indian uh, version of, of tea, and I have published some articles and I have plans to do a book uh, on chai, um, on how chai became the so-called national drink of India and its popularization. So I'm, I'm interested in many aspects of of lived popular culture. Um, but in any case, um, I was approached uh, back in 2010 by the uh, general editors of the Murti, the new Murti series, um, and asked to do a new translation of the Manas. And that's what I've been, I'm sorry, the Ramcharitmanas, Manas, but people uh, often shorten the title to just Manas. Uh, and so that's what I've been working on since then.
0: So, um, <clears throat> before we get into the Manus itself, tell us a little bit more about the uh, about the Murthy Classical Library of India, because this is uh, a large series that encompasses so many um, diverse uh, texts. You know, what's the goal of the series, and how do you how did you come to be associated with the series?
1: Well, uh, it is indeed potentially a very large series, Uh, that's the intention, because it's modeled on something called the Loeb Classical Library, L-O-E-B, which is also published by Harvard University Press, and is devoted to the literature of Greek and Latin. And that series has been in existence since uh, 1905, and has more than 500 titles in print. Um and they come out with about five volumes per year uh, because of due to an endowment they're able to keep doing that steadily uh and the books are all in identical format and size and very attractively uh printed and bound and reasonably priced and the The idea of that uh, of that series and the idea of the morty series both uh is to make. This literature available to the widest possible audience, and particularly in the case of the Murti series, which was endowed by uh, Rohan Murti, the um, the son of uh, Narayan Murti, the founder of Infosys. Um, Rohan Murti's idea was that uh, so many young people, particularly in India, are, are growing up in English medium education. They have very little exposure to the pre-modern classics of even their mother tongues, much less other Indian languages. And they get a smattering, perhaps, of English literature taught to them in school, often not very well. But they really don't uh, get a, a firm grounding in, in the, the wonderful literature that the subcontinent had produced. And, uh, you know, they end up to use, to use the Hindi idiom, you know, not, not having, uh, a firm footing in either cultural tradition. And, uh, to make the, the, the cultural heritage more accessible to such people, particularly, uh, Rohan Murthy had this idea of endowing this series. Um, and, uh, Thanks to a very generous gift that he made to the Harvard University Press, it is set up very much like the Loeb series, uh, with a, with an endowment that generates income each year, which is then used to produce four or five volumes. And um, the series aims to um, uh, publish works in all languages, so-called classical as well as uh, so-called vernacular. Um, from South Asia, from the subcontinent, um, written prior to eighteen hundred. Eighteen hundred has been set as the basically the cutoff date uh, for for what is uh, regarded as pre-modern, and and the works have to have achieved a certain level of renown and popularity uh, to be accorded this this status of a classic. Those decisions are made by the senior editors um but uh to date i think mm i think i think when this year's books come out i think there will be about 20 or more volumes um published uh and as i say there are many many more in the pipeline and the intention is to keep publishing four or five each year
0: so is this supposed to wh- wh- I- is it supposed to, I guess, be running parallel to the Harvard Oriental Series, which I still think is in press, right?
1: Yeah, the Harvard Oriental Series is a an academic um, project really aimed at scholars. And those works do not necessarily have to be well-known or um, uh, necessarily, you know, classics or popular. Um, and they're accompanied by very, very Detailed scholarly apparatus, in terms of notes and and so forth. Um, the Morty series is is intended somewhat differently. Um, footnotes are meant to be kept to a minimum. Uh, the introductions are supposed to be short. Um, the volumes themselves are really meant to be very. Um, uh, succinct and and compact, something that people can easily carry around with them if they want. Um, there's a couple of them that have gotten very long, but they've they've now kind of set a page limit on how how big each book can get. Um, and if you've seen them, I mean, they're they're very very attractive. The
0: print very is beautiful. beautifully put together. They they,
1: they... are indeed, uh, to the extent of they've commissioned uh, special fonts for. Oh, I I should say that they are dual language, so uh, in each book you have the original text on the left facing page, and the English translation on the right. And that means particularly, again, for the Indian audience, you know, people who can read uh, Devanagari or Tamil or Kannada or any other uh, Indic script, Maybe they don't they don't understand the the classical language completely, but they can at least um, decipher it, and they can at least read it out loud and, and read along, and perhaps understand some of it, and then see what the translator is doing with it. Uh, from a translator's point of view, it it makes one very exposed. Of course, you you have uh, the potential for a very close comparison of of your work with the original text. But I think it's a wonderful idea, and it's also very beautiful uh, in terms of the way the books look. And I should have mentioned earlier that the Indian edition is subsidized out of the endowment. So the volumes volumes are quite reasonably priced. Uh, I don't know exactly what they're going for now, but a couple of years ago they were in the uh, 250 to 300 rupee range per book. Uh, which nowadays is is quite reasonable.
0: So, um, you know, the multi series contains um, a, a, a lot of devotional, uh, well known devotional poets. We, uh, Christopher Shackle, has been uh, con- did his contribution on Bullesia. Our our dear uh, colleague Jack Hawley has contributed his uh, his uh, volumes on on Surdas to the to the series. So, my question is. Um, there's Sur, there's Mira, there's all sorts of bhakti poets that have achieved so much fame in the in the popular sort of Indian cultural imagination. So uh of all of them, why Tulsidas?
1: Well, um I I expect that the Murti series will eventually include uh many other Hindi bhakti poets. Um I don't know exactly what what is uh in the pipeline at this point, but um, I know that uh, Sheldon Pollock, who is the senior editor, very much wanted uh, the Manas to be to be in there and to be in there early uh, because of its rather extraordinary presence and role in North and Central Indian culture. You know, throughout the so-called Hindi belt uh, and even somewhat beyond. Um, and this is something that I've written about in in my book, uh, The Life of a Text. Um, the Manus has a kind of a scriptural status and a kind of a, a cultural epic weight for really hundreds of millions of people that is hard to equal. Um, there there are not many texts that that uh, have that kind of impact and therefore uh Pollock wanted it to be in the series um now when I should say when he approached me um I had never done any lengthy literary translation i had I had translated verses from the epic here and there in my writings about it uh but I had not really tried uh, to do a sustained um Literary translation, except that I did Sundarakand about 15 years ago, um, and it was it was uh, for Norton for the Norton Anthology of World Masterpieces, and then it was printed in the in the uh, Sahitya Academy Journal, uh, Indian Literature, as well, and a couple of couple of other yeah, a couple of other places, and that was kind of an experiment. I was trying to do something rather different and. Um, you could say outside of my box <laughs> on that particular uh, translation. I have since retranslated uh, Khan completely for the for the Morty series um, because the Morty series has very particular guidelines for translators uh, that I've been trying to adhere to. In any case, um, when I was asked to to do a new Manus translation. Um, The general guideline for a Murti series is that translations be into prose. And I really was not happy with that uh, for the manas. You may or may not know that there are nine published English translations uh, of which...
0: Yeah, I was going to talk to you about those. Yeah,
1: of of, of which I am aware. Anyway, there may even be more. Uh, But there are certainly nine of them and of those seven are into prose and I can't Don't like any of them. I I've never wanted to give them to students. Uh, I find them extremely prosaic and wordy and turgid uh, hard to read Um, And you know this for a poem that essentially is sung usually, you know, um
0: so this would be a good time to to talk to tell our our readers or our listeners I should say and potential readers of your of your volume as well um about the structure of the the monas itself because it 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 does follow usually a, a a pattern of quatrains and couplets up with different uh diff- other various type of poetic meters. And of course, like you said, they're meant to be, they're really meant to be sung. So um, the older translations, as you said, um, almost all of them that I've seen, except for maybe a handful um, from Indian authors, are all um, in prose. So let's talk about the structure, uh, the manner in which you wrote it, and then uh, Tulsi wrote the work. And what what is what type of challenges is that going to pose for you if you're if you're being asked to do it in prose form?
1: Sure. Well, well, but I'm not. So i i put my i i put my foot down and I said no way. If you want a prose translation, there's a decent one that was done in the 1950s by WDP Hill. And it's been it's been out of print for decades and it's pretty accurate and you can, you know, get the rights to it and reprint that. Uh, I was only interested in doing a, a free verse uh, translation. Um, and I'll tell you a little more in a bit about what I mean by that and my my approach um to, to doing it now there are by the way there are two of the nine translations are into rhyming English verse um, but they are one by a westerner and one by an Indian but um or an indo-american um, but they are uh, in my opinion particularly awful <laughs> um, uh, they they have the kind of jangling uh, sort of bad Wordsworth quality of sort of Victorian greeting cards, you know, and, and because they have to come up with a rhyme for everything, they take tremendous liberties with the meaning of the text. Um, and that simply would not be acceptable to them, either the Morty series or to me. So, so anyway, I, but they, they accepted my, um, my suggestion that it be into, uh, free verse and that's how i've been doing it um now the Manas um is written in a style that was popularized before tulsidas's time for epic narratives there it, in fact it goes quite far back into jain upa uh, poetry really I, um, know, I did
0: not know yeah, that that's interesting
1: yeah yeah the the, the and doha uh a stanza form, so most of the monas probably more than ninety percent of it consists of um st- what what I call stanzas um, uh, of a series of chopas for anywhere from four to sometimes ten or eleven uh followed by a a little cu- couplet or a doha. Uh, now, these are names of meters. Uh, Chopai's and Doha's are, are two different meters. Um, Chopai sounds like this. Akarachari lakachorasi Jati jiva nabhajalata lavasi Siyarama meyasabha jagajani Karampranama Jodi jugapani Okay, that is... A chopai, uh, a full chopai, which which consists of four feet, four um, uh, metrical units of sixteen beats each, sixteen mat- matras, um, forming a complete chopai. It probably ultimately uh, evolved out of the Sanskrit shloka meter, um, but. Um, that that is sort of the 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 bulk of the narrative. About eighty percent of the narrative is in chopai, and then after each series of chopais, you get a a shorter doha, um, which consists of two lines with a um, a, a, a caesura or a pause in the middle of each line, roughly the middle. It's eleven beats and then thirteen beats, um, and they sound like well, I'll, I'll I'll recite the most famous one.
0: Yes, uh, <laughs> I think our audience would like a, an example. Yeah,
1: I'll recite probably the most famous Doha from the Manas, known to virtually all North Indian Hindus. Shri Guru Charana Jaraja Nijamanamukuru Mukuru Sudhari, Barnaur Ragu Barabimala Jasu, Jodayaka now, that, that happens to be the uh, first Doha of Ayodhya Khand in the Manas, but it's also the the opening verse of the Hanuman Chalisa, the very popular uh, praise poem to Hanuman that people recite. Um, but anyway, that is a Doha, and uh, you can see that it has an end rhyme on each line, and uh, it also you can hear the Sejura in it in any case uh this is poetry that was certainly meant to be chanted and is often even sung to musical accompaniment and I've of course heard and written about many, many performances and many kinds of performances in my in my earlier work um so I was particularly reluctant to turn it into long, turgid. Paragraphs, which is what you get in most of the uh, prose translations, and I would say now I don't I don't try to get rhyme, and I don't try to do much alliteration, um, even though Tulsidas is very fond of alliteration, Um, and and it works in Tulsidas. It's a it's a it's a beautiful uh, effect which you find in a lot of pre-modern devotional poetry. Uh, but in English, um, particularly in English that is more or less meant to be silently read, uh, alliteration ends up sounding very artificial and forced. And I tried it. I tried it in my my first uh, translation of Sundarakant for the Norton uh, series. And if you if you go back and look at that, I, you'll see that I used a lot of alliteration in it. And at the time, I kind of thought I was very clever. Um, but reflecting on it and consulting with the uh, editors of the Murti series, I, I really came to see that it it doesn't work in English. And so I've toned that way down. Um, so so what is it that I try to do? Well, I try to keep my, my lines as short as possible. Um, you know, I'll translate... Uh, a half-chopai, um, and then I go back and look at it carefully. Uh, uh, first of all, I chant it out loud in, in Hindi. Um, I do my translation. I chant it again. I go back. I look at the original. I look at my translation. I try to see what words uh, could be eliminated or could be shortened or substituted with something shorter to keep the line length succinct and brief um I, I i think to myself uh that i'm i'm trying what i'm trying to preserve is gutty uh and uh, Style well and i i, I it, gutty has many many meanings but but right. what i'm thinking of i the the word that i use uh, is momentum uh, uh pace momentum nice. i'm trying to keep the reader moving through the text and not getting bogged down which is what I uh,
0: but doesn't the text kind of work doesn't the text kind of work against you in that form I remember reading the Manas, I think for the first time when I was 17 and every time Tulsi Das would say I'm about to begin the story of Rama Raman, <laughs> Raman Sita, and Sita or whatever then he launches into another discourse about the 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 importance of the name Rama or you know he he he's about to start, and then he launches into something well, else, and then he launches into something well, else. Well, you're, you're, you're cr- so how do you keep your how do you keep your first time readers maybe to the text interested when the author in that sense is kind of working against you a little bit?
1: Uh, well, I can't do anything about the content, um, and you're correct uh, that Balakand, which is Tulsidas's longest book, his first book, uh, roughly the first half of it is what I call the prologue. Um, and the story of Ram doesn't begin until the second half of Balakand. And I had I had the same experience the first time I read it in Hindi. Um, uh, with a teacher at the University of Chicago, Professor Kali charan Patel, um, I kept saying to him, "This is back in 1979, no, eighty, 1980, we started reading it." And I kept saying to him, "You know, when is the story going to begin?" <laughs> and, and, and 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 Tulsi Das says, "You know, I'm now I'm going to narrate the story of you know the greatest of all uh, heroes of the Ragu line, right." But then, as you say, he digresses. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't do anything about that, but I'm not talking i'm I'm not talking about the content, I'm talking about the way it's presented, and I want each I want each individual line to keep a certain gutty a certain a certain pace, a certain momentum, and keep the reader moving forward and of course, in that uh, half uh, half introduction. Many fascinating stories are told that's where you get the story of uh, Shiva and Sati and uh, the story of um, um, uh, the marriage of Shiva and Parvati which Tulsidas tells with great uh, flair and and gusto Uh, so there's lots of great stories uh, in there it's not all theological uh, and metaphysical uh, meditation although there is a um, certain amount of that
0: (laughs) So, just keeping a little bit on the on this topic of Gati because it's sort of interesting, because you've also talked about alliteration as well. So, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming that you as a translator will get into a groove, I guess, for a bit, so to speak, right? X number of chapais followed by a doha, followed by a, another set of chapais and another doha. And then um, what does that do for you when, say, let's talk about Sundarkand and, and alliteration is the that wonderful description of Hanuman when he's surveying Lanka for the first time you know kanaka you know that, that line so you've got, you've got mm-hmm. the you got the chapais and you got the mm, dholka, and you're Tana, going into Tana. this flow, and then boom, you've got that's actually
1: that's actually another uh, meter, by the way, that you just quoted, which is the chanda, or the something, yes, chanda, or it's called Harigitika Chand. It's a particular type of chanda, um, which is a lyrical quatrain, and uh, periodically, I would say they constitute maybe oh three to four percent. I mean, I'm just roughly guessing. Uh, or even less, maybe 2% of the of the total epic. But uh, Tulsidas introduces uh, them periodically, yeah. um, usually at moments of either very high emotion yeah. or moments when he wants to make some very important theological point, or some kind of heightened description, as in the case of the one that you just uh, cited, which is Hanuman's first glimpse of the the magical, fantastic city of the, of the Rakshasas, uh, the demons on Lanka. And you get this incredible uh, description of it that, that goes on through several chuns. In fact, it goes on so long that Tulsidas kind of apologizes for it at the end. Um, and I don't, I don't have it in front of me, neither the original nor my translation, but, you know, he says something to the effect of, you know, um, the only reason I've gone on at such great length about these guys, uh, these these Rakshasas, is because they're going to all shed their bodies at the, at the Tirtha, at the, at the pilgrimage place of Rama's arrows, and they're going to attain salvation you know which is part of the uh, the devotional uh, dimension of the poem all the all the demons that ram kills uh become you know and well whatever happens the various words are used they attain nirvana they they attain moksha they they go to ram's dham ram's uh, supreme abode they get some sort of uh exalted spiritual state uh, as a result of their their contact with Ram, even as enemies. So, uh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, I I know I digressed from
0: whatever no, your no, question was I, going. I'm really to be. enjoying myself. There's no <laughs> there's, there's no reason because I'm <laughs> learning an enormous amount. And I'm sure our, our our listeners are as 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 well. Um, uh, just about the the Chanda, Do you think even though they constitute such a small percentage of the manas that in some ways because of their musicality they are the most well-known or J.J. Suranayak those ones from the Balkan for yeah.
1: example. Yeah there, there's a there's a few that are very popular and that are sometimes uh, sung in temples as Artists. part of arti ceremonies yeah uh, but those are just really very few so um, but yeah. they yeah they, they 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 lend themselves to musical uh performance and and as in the one that you just cited which is um the uh the chand when ram is born bey pragata kripala dina de ala hitakari you you have um internal rhyme you know within each line um that makes it particularly uh musical
0: so let's um talk a little bit about the author himself. Now, I, I know this is sort of a loaded question because there's there's the, the popular traditional view of who Tulsidas is that's been, you know, repeated in books and movies and plays and so on. Um, but, like, where does Tulsidas sort of, who? what do we think we know about him from the little bits and pieces we get from his works? Like, what do you think we know reliably uh, or semi reliably about the quote unquote historical Tulsidas?
1: Yeah, um, well, you know, like the historical Jesus, we actually know very little uh, <laughs> the historical versus the legendary. Um, and um, what we can, the, the legend of Tulsidas probably began growing even during his lifetime because he achieved uh, a considerable fame during his lifetime. We know that, um, he says it in his poetry. Um, and other poets also mention this. Um, and you know, the, the earliest, uh, hagiographical to use a scholarly term refers to sacred biography the earliest sacred biographies of Tulsidas uh start coming out uh, in the in the early 1600s and then in the, in the 1700s um uh, you know in the common era um so Within a century of his death, you get a, a legend that starts growing uh, about him and about certain incidents in his life, and these are well known today. People accept them and, and believe them, but there isn't any historical evidence for them. There, there isn't. Uh, there aren't inscriptions. There aren't direct uh, historical accounts that can be taken at face value. Um, but uh, the, the general consensus among most scholars, although not necessarily devotees, uh, is that Tulsidas lived for about 80 years and probably between roughly 1543 and 1623. 1623 is the traditional date of his death. Um, he lived much of his life in Benares. Um there is a house uh in South Benares at Tulsigat, which is thought to be where he where he lived and thought to have been built for him by a wealthy landowner. Um he was a sadhu of some sort, although whether what what precise kind of order he was initiated into is not is not clear. Um, he's claimed, of course, by the Ramanandi the Sempradaya. Um, but he does refer to himself as a sadhu, and even as a Gosain, uh, a Goswami, a term that usually refers to someone who is in charge of a temple or mutt, uh, a, a, a kind of monastery or monastic establishment where sadhus may sometimes stay. Um, and that comes in some of his late poetry. Um, he talks about his childhood and refers to having suffered a great deal as a child. Um, and he's, he he mentions being abandoned by his parents. Um, it is thought that this. Uh, well, there are traditional explanations that are given in the in the uh, legendary biography for how this happened but but he may have been orphaned or he may have actually been uh abandoned given away by his parents and perhaps given to some sadhus he he speaks of having to beg for scraps of food from door to door and uh, experiencing terrible uh want and deprivation uh and then he talks of Hanuman and Ram uh showing grace to him and sort of taking uh, bringing him under their shelter um, and then he he rededicates his life to Ram um, This much you know we we know from the poetry um, there's also uh hints in some of the later poems that he faced opposition, particularly after he chose to create the the epic uh retelling of of the Ramayana in in Popular language in the Avadi dialect of, of uh, Hindi. And uh, this was regarded as uh, sinful by some Brahmin scholars who felt that the Ramayana should be in Sanskrit and should only be the preserve of the highly educated, uh, who could then expound it to the common people, uh, but not actually translate it directly. Um, And so, Tulsidas speaks of that, of being scorned and criticized. Um, And there are, in some of his late poetry, there are references to certain uh, incidents uh, of plague that broke out in Banaras in the early 1600s, around 1613 or so. Uh, There are known to have been several incidents of plague, Mahamadi, Tulsidas talks about it. Um... So these this much we can we can gather from the poetry
0: itself. So um, he, I mean, his his work is is large. Uh, what we have sort of as an official corpus. It's not that he's only written the Manas. So it might be um, good for listeners to know a little bit more about the the other works that he's he's written. And then you know within that corpus of work. Where does the manas sort of a fit into that context? And B, you've alluded to the opposition that um, he may have or probably did encounter from some circles in Benares over translating the Ramayana into, um, into avati. And so that leads to the question of, why? Because certainly, for me, what was always striking about the text from all the numerous times that I've read it is that, in, in some ways, it's so much like the the Bhagavata Purana, the the, the text that contains all the the very popular, well known stories about the the life of Krishna. Uh, the Balkand birth story that we were talking about earlier is so reminiscent of when uh, Krishna opens his mouth and shows Yashoda the entire um universe or ram is t- telling shauri and uh and the ramachandra about the nine forms of bhakti right Which are a direct sort of uh directly inspired from the the bhagavata mm-hmm. and i i think either it's in um i don't know what's about this text i think he talks about you know what's wrong with the current spiritual age and and he, i think he's making sort of a brief allusion to to groups like Kabir Pantis who are using the name of Rama in a very different way and sort of displacing the 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 authority of Brahminical authority. And I'm assuming that's why at the beginning of the Manas, you know, he's talking about the word Rama in a sort of an all-encompassing sort of way that can encompass both Rama as a deity and a sort of formless being. And I think that's something you talk about in Life of a Text as well. So i got a few questions going for you.
1: Yeah that you once again you've incorporated a lot of uh, questions here um let me just backtrack a little bit you and I both have used the word translation in relation to the manas, and i i i don't want to let that stand because the manas is the manus is not a translation of the valmiki ramayana or any other ramayana it's a, it's an independent very creative um Original retelling uh, of the Rama story, which is which is very much in keeping with the Ramayana tradition. It's what all of the regional uh, Rama texts uh, tend to do, and um, scholars often use the term Ramkatha um, to refer to the the greater tradition, the greater uh, Rama story, uh, which exists in so many different uh, variants. So. Um, That said, uh, you're certainly correct to cite the Bhagavata Purana. Tulsidas was clearly a very learned uh, person. Uh, He must have been well-educated by the standards of the time. Uh, He certainly knew Sanskrit. Uh, He writes uh, Sanskrit mangalacharanas at the beginning of each uh, khand of the manas, and he also has some Sanskrit um, stuttis, uh, praise poems, um, interjected at various points in the text. Um, he clearly was familiar with the Bhagavata Purana, which by that time had achieved uh, considerable renown in Vaishnava circles. And as you say, there are there are passages in the manas that directly show uh, the influence of the Bhagavata. Um, another text that he obviously was familiar with is called the Adhyatma Ramayana, the, the metaphysical or spiritual Ramayana, which probably predates the manas by a good century or more, um, and uh, is put in the form of a dialogue between Shiva and Parvati, as is much of the Manas. And there are many passages in the Manas that directly uh, reflect similar ones in the Adhyatma Ramayana uh, as well. So, Tulsidas uh, clearly had influences, um, you know, texts that he considered to be important and that that affected his his own retelling of the story. But there's no uh, getting away from the fact that it's a highly original work. Uh, he he often speaks in his own voice, very boldly uh, and very assertively. Now, you bring up the 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 criticism of the uh, the Sunt tradition and the the Nirguna. Uh, bhakti tradition um and that is indeed there um, Tulsidas really wants to have it both ways you know he 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 wants to have his his uh mitai uh you know and eat it too so to speak um he 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 regards Ram as the absolute god of gods uh the absolute transcendent uh, deity. And he's he's very um, definite about that throughout the poem. And all other deities, including Vishnu, by the way, uh, are sort of uh, minor manifestations or forms of Ram. Ram is the supreme deity. And, and even more, Sitaram, uh, this, this sort of uh, androgynous uh, divine dyad, you know, the, the 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 feminine aspect as well as the masculine aspect of divinity. Now it, it ultimately he boils it all down to the name, the divine name, Rama, the two the two Aksharas. And um he has a long discourse on this in Balkant, uh about nine stanzas uh devoted to the glory of the name. And he makes the very audacious uh, statement that he considers the name to be even greater than Ram himself. Um, it's He says it's greater than the absolute or Brahma, uh, but it's also greater than Ram, meaning the character in the Ramayana story. And then he goes into a long series of examples of this, Uh you know, uh, Ram liberated one fallen woman, thinking of Ahalya, uh, whereas his name liberates millions, right? That, that kind of thing. He goes through a whole series of, of comparisons. Um, so, you know, among uh, the sons, and particularly in the poetry of Kabir, which would have been extremely popular in uh, Benares and in that region at the time of uh, Tulsi's life. Uh, because Kabir predates Tulsidas by about a half century or, or perhaps more. Um, so in, in the poetry of the Sons, uh, Ram is also often praised. Uh, the name of Ram is praised as a, as a mantra. Um, but it's explicitly said that this is not uh, the Vaishnava hero of the Ramayana. This is not this mythological character. It's not this prince um and Tulsidas is very uncomfortable with that uh he 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 wants to refute that he wants he wants the name to be the ultimate um not even symbol the ultimate embodiment of godhood but he also wants it to be the beautiful handsome heroic just merciful Loving King of Ayodhya, with all of his attributes, uh, all of his physical attributes, and all of his moral attributes, and all of the stories that are connected with him, he wants all that to be there. And this is this is a constant theme throughout the epic. This kind of back and forth between the 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 transcendent, the inexpressible, um, the the formless. Uh, divine and the divinity in form and and Tulsidas keeps insisting that they are not different they are one and the same saguna saguna and nirguna uh, are both there in ram and
0: he kind of wants to make sure this appeals to all as as, as many uh, 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 parts of society as possible, because it it seems that he's trying to, you know, uphold brahminical orthodoxy, while at the same time trying to emphasize that bhakti is sort of a universal thing for, uh, uh, Ram bhakti is universal, it can offer everyone salvation, whether it's it's brahmins or demons or... um, uh, and I'm using this as my segue to talk about Bushundi Bhush- and <laughs> Garuda, right? Because they're are two interesting characters who pop up rather abruptly towards the end of the of the entire Ramcharitmanas. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about them, because here we have a crow and Vishnu's mount, his bird, his eagle, talking about about about. Bhakti and kind of popping into the narrative towards the end, and Shundi, of course, being a, a crow, is you know symbolically sort of the lowest of the low because they feed on 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 flesh.
1: Yes, the the chandal among birds, the untouchable among birds, uh, they're sometimes called. Indeed, um, well, I. I would agree with what you just said about Tulsi wanting to reach the the widest possible audience, and I think anybody who reads uh, that prologue, w- which in in my translation is volume one, uh, because Balcond is so long that the Murti series had to break it into two volumes uh, using using their format. Um, so the first volume is really that what I called the prologue to the Manus. And if you read that, uh, you, you'll I, I i don't see how you can avoid the feeling that this guy definitely has a message oh, he wants to get across. <laughs> he's he is, uh, you know, he is standing there on a soapbox, as we would say in, in American English. Um, and he, you know, he wants to reach people and and get this message of Ram Bhakti across. And, and his message, as you say, is that in this uh, degraded age in which we live, the Kali Yuga, um, this, this dismal age of discord and disharmony and immorality, um, and I certainly wouldn't dispute that, uh, um, the, the name of God is the surest route to salvation. And Tulsidas fervently believes that, and he believes that it's for everyone and he includes all sorts of people including uh, you know yavanas which which uh, originally meant greeks but by tulsidas's time essentially meant muslims but but people from the West, so me <laughs> uh, as well. You know, everyone uh, can be saved uh, by the, by the power of Ram's name. And in that sense, you know, he's very egalitarian and he's very open. But as you pointed out, he also is very concerned with preserving what he sees as some of the the good features of sort of high Brahminical Sanskritic culture, um, and he he's very. Reluctant to throw them away um, and often defends them you know almost in the same breath as he 's advocating a kind of uh, devotional egalitarianism which makes for some kind of jarring uh, juxtapositions um, and Busundi is a good example now now I should say um, that the manas is uh, has a remarkable structure um in the in the form of uh what you could call yeah what you could call a kind of postmodern um narrative structure. I mean you it sort of makes you think of some somebody a storyteller like Salman Rushdie or something, <laughs> uh uh or or James Joyce. Uh you know, I mean he it's not a um straight line linear narrative by any means. Um and and in the in the opening section, he sets up this series of frames in which you have four different narrators uh, telling simultaneously telling the story to four different listeners or sets of listeners. Um, and each narrator, traditionally, um traditional commentators on the Manus, uh, the Ramayanis or Manasis, um, they, they think of each narrator as having a particular darshana, a particular uh, philosophical perspective or point of view on the story, um, and uh, Kakabusundi the the crow um, is uh, thought to embody the bhakti perspective, the 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 prema, the the love devotional devotional love perspective uh, on the story, and he comes in in the second half of Uttarkhand the last book. Um After the Rama narrative has concluded um and as you say, but he's he's there earlier he, periodically, there are little um asides that he makes uh to his listener, who is uh, garuda uh Vishnu's eagle um but he he becomes the main narrator of the second half of Uttarakhand, And uh, indeed, he is a crow. He's an immortal being who has taken the form of a crow as a result of a curse. And he has accepted this curse very happily. And he's quite happy being a crow. And he sits on top of a, a magical mountain in the Himalayas the Blue Mountain, and he constantly tells the Ramkatha to an audience of birds. It's a, it's a wonderful, charming image. Um, and uh, Garuda is sent to him by Shiva and others uh, to clear up a doubt that he has about Ram. And uh, he ends up hearing the entire story from Kakabushundi, who then uh, goes on to give this long discourse about uh, it tells his own life story and also gives this long discourse about the power of bhakti and the power of the name uh, to save souls in the in the kali yuga so
0: um just uh really um briefly um two final things for you um first one uh, about the view tucidas's ramayana sort of like you said it's 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 inspired by valmiki's narrative but you he has definitely put his own stamp on it and his own voice into the narrative. And in order to make Rama sort of this universal sort of powerful Saguna slash Nirguna uh, figure, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, does that influence some of the choices that he makes uh, when he's kind of uh, fashioning his narrative? For example... Um, uh, the question I'm thinking about is at the very end. Uh, Sita is not exiled into the forest at the end of the manas. Uh, in the way that uh, happens in, in Valmiki and other versions of the Ramayan. Everyone uh, it ends on a happy on a happy note. Sita, Ram, the two children, love and gush, and that's sort of that's it. You know, it, I, I'm assuming that he's making a conscious editorial choice there for his theological vision.
1: Yes, it, it 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 ends with the uh, triumphant and utopian vision of Ramraj, which of course has become a very powerful uh, term and even slogan uh, in Indian life and and in politics as well uh, in modern times. but um, Tulsidas clearly knew the Uttarakanda story from Valmiki of Sita's exile. He refers to it. He mentions it very briefly in Balkand. Um, but he doesn't choose to tell it. And I think he—he, he, I think that's a very deliberate choice. I don't think he could bear to tell it. It—it uh, it, it was disturbing to him. Um, it was not the kind of note that he wanted to end on um so yes he makes many choices like that um rama's divinity is always foremost in the manas it's it's constantly emphasized um this is not the case in valmiki as you know or in the mahabharata the, div- the heroes are divine they're avatars of various gods but their divinity is often kind of in the background. Um, and their their humanity and their human action is, is emphasized uh, in much of the narrative. Um, but that's not the case in Tulsidas. Um, whenever Ram does anything that involves the slightest um, uh, seeming, well, even emotion or certainly indecision or anything that would might be questioned, Tulsidas immediately reminds you, of course, he is just playing this is just this is leela this is his human um you know manuja andusara behaving like a person a, a human being a man um and this is not uh, you know really uh, something that 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 uh, affects ram's
0: reality his inherent yeah um, because i always think of the uh the scenes where uh sita is uh where when ram is for example weeping over lakshma who uh who has been wounded on the battlefield or losing sita um and and uh, uh he's looking through the forest and there you get these profound very moving descriptions of of uh Rama's grief and that he's he's crying. He's crying over his brother's body while Hanuman is trying to save him, uh, is off trying to save Lakshman. And in the middle, now just remember folks, uh Rama's just doing this for our benefit as human beings. <laughs> uh he's really God. Just <laughs> keep that in mind. This is all part of the divine this is all part of the divine sport that that he's engaging in for for our benefit. Is is sort of that editorial voice that keeps being um, put in there to remind his to, to remind his listeners I, I wouldn't say readers of his text um, say. so my last question is, uh, I'm going to put you I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit um, do you have a favorite couple of lines you'd like to recite for us before you go
1: oh gosh um, there are so many you did such a beautiful <laughs> job
0: reciting uh, the, the other verses that I, I think I certainly would, and I think our listeners would maybe like to hear maybe what are your couple of verses before we end.
1: Well, there are so many that I love um, and that I often think of, but I'm going to give you one Chopai that um, is very important because it it is spoken by Ram himself, and it is is part of the teachings that he imparts to his brothers uh, at the end. Uh, in uttarakhand in uh, after he's back in ayodhya and reigning as as king and so it's a kind of a, an upadesha a teaching that that ram is giving out and uh, this one verse uh particularly stands out for me para sarisa nahi bhai sama uh, and I would translate that uh, again. I don't have my, my, I recently finished a first draft of Uttar Khan, but I don't have it open in front of me here, but Parahita um, uh, there is no, there is no dharma, no righteousness, no religion, no religious path uh, equal to doing the, the good of others. Affecting the good of others, parahita. Um, And there is no uh, vileness or baseness, no lowness, adamai, um, equal to causing pain to others. Um, That is very similar to the so-called golden rule that you find in in many uh, other religious traditions. And it is certainly something that I wish that uh, more people today lived by um, uh, adhered to in their daily lives. It's a, it's a great Upadesh that we could all take from the Manas.
0: So, on that note, Philip, thank you so much for being on the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. Tusidas has been my favorite poet and really my the reason I got into Pukti studies in the first place. And I remember reading your book when I was an undergrad. So, uh, I am so thrilled that I could be able to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much, Shandeep. So, um, we were talking, uh, good listeners, to Philip Littendorf, who uh, has been translating Tulsidas's Ram Chiratmanas under the title The Epic of Ram. Got that right this time. Which is part of the Murti Classical Literature of India series published by Harvard University Press uh, and distributed in India by Penguin. Um, it's a seven volume translation, of which uh, four are in press. So, uh,
1: four are out. Uh, I have the four, first three.
0: Four uh, are published. Four are published. Sorry, four published. I have the first three in my collection. I can attest to how wonderful they are and how great the Murthy series in general is. So thank you for joining me, listeners, on the New Book in Hindu Studies podcast. The podcast is part of the New Book's Network brought to you by Amherst College Press. If you'd like to know more about the New Books Network and the range of podcasts that the network offers, please visit www.newbooksnetwork.com and please subscribe to you, the network on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm your host, shandeep Saha. Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University. To learn more about why Athabasca U has been the world leader in open education, visit www.athabascau.ca. So, thank you again for listening to the podcast and for sharing a part of uh, your day with us.